Our scripture today is Psalm 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The word of the Lord. It's been our habit for the last few summers to meditate on the Psalms all summer long. It's a nice way to change the pace and practice some contemplation, learn how to meditate, learn how to pray, central theme of a life of faith. And we have an entire song book of prayerful sung meditations that the ancient Hebrew poets gave us. So we take advantage of them every summer. And here David declares in the storm that the voice of the Lord makes the forest bare. So I want to ask you a question. What was your most frightening nature experience? Uh, we're getting ready to, as a family, go tent camping for six nights in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. And it was, I realized this week, it's exactly a year and a day. Uh, a year ago yesterday, we were tent camping in the Black Hills in South Dakota, several thousand feet up. And we had just set up our tents. It got dark. We got into our tents and the skies opened up. This, this mountain thunderstorm came rolling in. I mean, we just got the tents up in time and, and we, all, we all tried to go to sleep in two separate tents because we're a big family. And, and, it, and it, you know, the lightning, the torrential uh, rain, and, and it was the kind of mountain thunder that makes the ground beneath your sleeping bag rumble. And, 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 one, and I kid you not, one of our children uh, essentially tried to crawl into my armpit and under my body, literally. And, and, I, and I'm convinced that if it were possible, this child would have torn through the, the tent floor and, and tunneled into the ground. And I probably, I felt that I, like I wanted to do the same thing. One of the advantages of being a parent or a teacher on a trip like that or someone in charge, a camp counselor, is you realize you've got to be big for the people around you. So I didn't have the option to, to be that scared, but in my heart, I was. Um, we, we live in a relatively, geologically speaking, uneventful part of the you know, region of North America. There's some flooding, there, there's some storms, um, 
but people in other parts of the world, people in the third world, and, and look, until very recently in human history, uh, nature was and is a constant threat, a constant threat that affects you every day. You have real losses regularly because you're at nature's mercy. It's no wonder many ancient cultures worshiped elements of nature as, as godlike, as gods. Now, the ancient Hebrews, almost completely, almost unique among the ancient peoples and their religion, were convinced that they shouldn't do that, that they shouldn't worship God as nature, that God was not nature, and that nature did not produce their God, the God that the Bible speaks of. And in this 29th Psalm, we find a song, David's sung meditation of how a believer understands the power of nature, that the power of nature reflects the power and the glory of God, of the one who created nature, who sustains nature, and who actually exists apart from nature and reigns over it. And what I hope to impress upon us today is that the chaos that we see in the natural world, it threatens us. It threatens with inside of you and outside of you. Uh, maybe my most uh, terrifying experience of natural phenomenons is just suffering through a, a, a deadly disease, uh, just having to fight cancer and deal with its ongoing effects in the, the equality of my life, the regular daily physiological aspects of what I have to deal with. Uh, sometimes you know this, the chaos of nature is within you. It's not simply out there. It threatens, the, 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 it threatens your very body. It threatens the length of your days. And so what I hope you'll see today from the 29th Psalm is that nature's chaos threatens within and without you, but God is above that chaos. And that's what David meditates on in his song. And as we read David's meditation, I wanna consider three things, that God is worthy of our worship. It's what David declares and that God is deserving of our trust. And finally, that he is faithful to deliver us from the natural phenomena that we experience inside and outside of our bodies. God is worthy of your worship, he is deserving of your trust, and he's faithful to deliver you. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Psalm calls not only humans, but angels to worship God. The Psalm calls angels to worship a God who is worthy of it. The opening verses are like what we do at the beginning of every worship service, a call to worship. If you look at the verse, the first two verses, ascribe to the Lord, just give to the Lord, it means. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Many scholars believe it means in the splendor of God's holiness. As the Apostle Paul would tell New Testament Christians many centuries later, do all things to the glory of God. We just saw that in our study of Corinthians a couple of months ago. As Paul said, do all things for the glory of God. Many centuries before Paul, David called Old Testament believers to seek the glory of God in all things. 
even in nature, even in the natural world, as they look around them and see the power and the overwhelming, consuming might, David calls believers to seek the glory of God, even in the natural world. And David calls his listeners to meditate on God's glory in a very interesting poetic way, creative way. He, he wants them to meditate on the glory and power of God by imagining a thunderstorm. He asks them to imagine a thunderstorm. He sings about it. This storm rolls in from the west, from the Mediterranean Sea, and it moves across the land of ancient Palestine, wreaking havoc in its path from the from the high northern regions down into the south of ancient Israel. I'll read it for you, just a few verses. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord over many waters. See, that's, that's the Mediterranean Sea. And again, the voice of the Lord. Now, the voice, you see it seven times in this song. He repeats the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Think of repetitive, booming thundercracks in a storm. The voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. He goes on, he says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. These are the great mighty uh, evergreen trees in the far north in Lebanon near Mount Hermon. That's, what's, that's what Syrian is, Mount Hermon. These were mighty trees that built David's palace. These trees would later build the temple under David's son, Solomon's direction. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He goes on to say, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. That sounds like lightning, a mighty storm coming in off the sea and just creating a trail of destruction from the north to the south of that region. You know, the preacher Charles Spurgeon said that when you read Psalm 8, you should check these Psalms out if you're not familiar with them. When you read Psalm 8, Charles Spurgeon said, read it under the stars on a moonlit night. And when you read Psalm 19, these were other Psalms of David. When you read Psalm 19, read it as you watch the morning sun rise over the horizon. But as you read this one, Psalm 29, Charles Spurgeon said, read it in a thunderstorm. Because Psalm 19, you see the storm's power, to use an expression from uh, Psalm 19, uh, you see here in Psalm 29, the storm's power declares the glory of God. Not only do the heavens, the stars and moon and sun declare the glory of God, but David says here, the powerful thunderstorm that strips the forest bare declares the glory of God. The storm, David is saying, proves his worth, his weight to be worshiped by his creatures. Now look, you know this, David wasn't a scientist. It's not how he's approaching this, he's a poet. David was an artist. And James Boyce once wrote, if you don't have a poetic spirit, you'll never appreciate this song. This is not a poem to be critically analyzed, not in a scientific frame of mind. If you keep telling yourself that the voice of God is not in thunder, that thunder is only the clashing of differently charged electronic particles, you'll miss it all. James Boyce went on to say, to appreciate this psalm, we have to get out in the fields. Watch the majesty of some ferocious storm and recall that God is in the storm, directing it, 
as he is in all other natural and historical phenomena. John Muir, um, the naturalist and the, the father of the American National Parks system, uh, John Muir in his writings uh, once recorded that in the middle of a ferocious thunderstorm in California's high Sierra Nevada mountains, uh, he was walking through uh, a pine forest. We're talking 100-foot-tall pines. Um, and he was walking through, and he climbed a large pine tree as close as he could to the top. And in the thunderstorm, as, as, the, pine, as the trunk of this pine tree just rocked back and forth in the wind, and the rain and the lightning, he just hugged on to the trunk, swaying back and forth. That's the kind of guy he was. As in another place in his writings, he records that that one day, as as the tremors of an earthquake rolled through Yosemite's valley, he went out in to to feel the earthquake in the valley, and he kept shouting to himself, "A noble earthquake! A noble earthquake!" And just to put that into perspective, I think that puts David's sentiment here into perspective. But this is what David's doing. It's a little bit different. David, in the midst of a storm, is declaring a mighty God. In the storm, a mighty God. A mighty God looking beyond the phenomenon to its maker. And I think that's remarkable. While the ancients were terrified, look, you and I are terrified, but, what, but we have all this technology and, and, and we have all these comforts. The ancients were terrified of nature. And rightly so, I think David was as well. He was a shepherd boy. He was out in the elements. He remembered what that was like. But more than terrified, David is worshiping. More than awe, David expresses affection for the God above the storm. Why is that? Why do we see in the ancient Hebrews not only a terror, not only an awe when they saw nature at work, but, but an affection? Why do we see the affection? It's because they trusted the God above the storm. They weren't simply in awe of him. They trusted him, and he deserves your trust. Those ancient Hebrew songwriters teach us something still today, that worship, that true worship involves awe and trust. That's true worship from the Bible's perspective, from a Christian perspective, awe and trust, equally balanced and working together. Because behind the forces of nature is a person, a person who desires us to know him. Just as the prophet Elijah found out, he discovered so vividly once in a moment of great personal doubt for him. He was so petrified and he had no reason to be because God had just done some amazing things through him, but he was scared for his life. And so he was hiding in a cave in the wilderness. And first Kings chapter 19 tells us that when he was hiding in that cave, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. But we're told the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake came. And the Bible tells us, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. Kind of sounds like David's psalm. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, we are told. 
After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard that, he left the cave and the Lord spoke to him. There came a voice to him and God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you hiding? Responding to nature's power is a matter of worship. We don't think that way. But responding to the natural phenomenon outside of us and inside of us is a matter. It's, it's that important. It gets to the central operation of why we were created as human beings. It's a matter of worship. That as we respond to the nature within us and outside of us, we give God his due. From David's perspective, science for us, it becomes a discovery. It becomes a discovery of God's infinite handiwork, whether you're discovering supernovas or whether you're discovering how bees make honey. With David's perspective here in mind, technology, wonderful technology, comes under the moral oversight of our conscience. Now technology comes under the Holy Spirit led guidance of your conscience. Whether you are trying to figure out how to use stem cells or whether you're trying to figure out how to best use your smartphones. And nature now, under David's perspective, nature is conserved and protected for its maker. Not simply for us, not simply for future generations. It's not selfish like that. From David's perspective, we protect the planet because we're stewards of it. We make it the best we can make it. All its creatures, all its inhabitants, the systems that are at work within it for the glory of the one who created it and left us here as stewards of it to worship him by taking care of it all. That is the most unselfish reason to get involved in environmentalism. John Calvin said that as you read Psalm 29, you stand in awe of the majesty of God. But, but also he said that, that we begin to hope from him all that we need for our prosperity. And, and, and we're persuaded that since God's power is infinite, we're defended by an invincible fortress. We're not only left in awe, in awe but but we move in affection and love to trust him as David did. So as we begin to think about the way we interpret science today, a noble thing, and as we think about how we use the amazing technology that we had literally at our fingertips, that we have in order to deal with chemical issues in our bodies and, and sicknesses that we face, in a sense, we can use technology uh, with the guidance of science to a degree control the chaos of nature around us as we were created to do. But in all of these things, give God his due. Some of you, are, you're going back to school in a couple of months. In the science classroom, as you and your teachers begin to observe and interpret the data, give God his due. As you begin to look at the treatment options for your cancer or for your heart disease, or as you work with your therapist on what's the best medication to deal with your chemical imbalance in that moment, give God his due. 
as you sign off on that homeowner's insurance policy, thinking that it will somehow protect and insure your assets, even in that moment when you sign the homeowner's insurance policy, give God his due. It often appears that creation's chaos reigns over us, does it not? Despite our scientific advancement and knowledge, despite the technological wonders that we benefit from, and despite our healthy eating attempts, despite our endless exercise, the tide, no, well, pun intended, the tide of nature's chaos will come rolling back in someday. We cannot escape. We cannot hold off nature's approaching entropy upon your days here, upon the condition of your physical body, even upon the health of your mind. And, and, and if you're really honest with yourself, you also at times are tempted to think, look, if God is directing the storm, is he punishing me with the storm? Is that, what, is that what's going on here? Now, the answer to your specific case is, I don't know. I don't know the mind of God for each of our circumstances. Maybe, maybe not. But the Bible does tell us, I can tell you this, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, the Bible tells us that all of creation, the natural order is groaning, Paul says, groaning like somebody in the pains of labor childbirth, all of creation groaning, and then that groaning is the result of the creator subjecting creation to futility. This subjection to futility was the consequence for humanity's rebellion. Paul summed it up earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter one, by saying, and this is, this is where the entropy comes from. It's that because we exchange, humanity exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature instead of the creator. Sin, in its, regardless of its many manifestations, sin in its simplest form is giving any created thing God's due. David reminds us in verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Now, the only other place in the Old Testament where that Hebrew word for flood comes up is, you can think of it, Genesis 6. Genesis 6, the flood account of Noah. It's the only other place you find the specific word, David reminding us that earthquakes and floods and heart disease and chemical depression are means of God's discipline. But rather than heed his loving, wise, careful, fatherly discipline, rather than heed all of these things, we continue, to not, we continue to deny him, to doubt him, to deny his presence, to deny his glory, to doubt his power. Great example just from two weeks ago. So after the big earthquake in Southern California, one celebrity tweeted these words been living in Los Angeles all my life. That was the longest earthquake I've ever experienced. It was so long, I thought for the first time ever, is this the big one? Expletive. Respect mother nature. 
she's the boss. I think that sums us up. Now, what if that person had said, expletive, respect God, he's the boss. Ooh, talk about shock waves from an earthquake. It's really not acceptable to say that these days, but it is perfectly acceptable to say, respect mother nature, she's the boss. But C.S. Lewis once cautioned us about the danger of misinterpreting nature. He wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, there is a sense in which nature worship silences her. Nature worship silences her as if a child or a savage were so impressed with the postman's uniform that he omitted to take the letters. So impressed with the mailman or the mailwoman that you forget to take the mail. And we silence what God is trying to say to us, to proclaim to us through nature. Now you may not think you're a worshiper of nature, like you know you don't pray to the moon. You know you don't often hug trees, okay? But, but when we lean most heavily on science to interpret reality for us, ultimate reality and meaning, or when we rely primarily on technology to protect us and inform and educate us, we give nature the due that God alone deserves. And that's worship. Worship is taking any good thing, even science and technology, and giving it God's due. And in response, God's given us what we've wanted. Nature reigns over us. It's chaos, inescapable, outside of us, inside of us. And yet, and yet, the God who is there, the God who is above the storm, who is directing it for reasons only he knows, the God who is there is faithful to us. That's the last thing we discover in David's song here, that this God of nature is faithful. David's song, it resolves. It, it musically and poetically resolves like, like the warm sun and singing birds close out a passing thunderstorm. You know what I'm talking about? When the, the, that some of the scariest storms are over quickly and the sun comes out and the birds come back and you go, you know, if it passed quickly enough, I may be able to still mow the lawn today. But in a sense, the psalm ends that way. The storm passes, and in verse 11, he declares, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The word is shalom, blessing the love of God for you. And the Hebrew is stronger than may the Lord bless you and give you peace. It, it's the, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Shalom. The same God who sent the Genesis flood, do you remember, sent a rainbow after it with a promise. With a promise that his mercy would always outweigh his discipline and endure through it. After the storm comes a promise, if by faith we're willing to hear it, if by faith we're willing to listen, 
the word of God speaks to us more distinctly and profoundly than nature ever could. Nature declares his glory, but his word declares his mercy and his compassion. As we read the Bible, we discover that the moral law teaches us that we deserve nature's chaos. We deserve it because we exchanged God's truth for a lie. But Christian grace teaches us that God is with us through the chaos. Yes, we deserve the chaos, but God's grace tells us he's with us through it. And Jesus Christ is the proof. Because as we look at the man Jesus, we see that the God of nature entered into his creation. The God who is separate and apart from it, sustaining it, over it, he entered into it as a creature himself. Phenomenal, unheard of, scandalous. We would have never cooked that up. God entered into the creation as a creature and he subjected himself to the natural chaos. He, Jesus subjected himself, the son of God, to all of the natural chaos outside of us and inside of us. He submitted himself to it. And actually the doctrine of creation in the Bible, that God was the cause behind all of this, the doctrine of creation actually establishes that miracles are logically possible and that we should even expect them if God showed up in human form and walked among us in the creation that he established. We find in, in Luke chapter 18, as the disciples were scared to death because they were on a fishing boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and out of nowhere, a torrential gale swept across the lake and they were frightened to death. And Jesus, is the son of God, is lying down sleeping in the boat. And he woke them, they woke him up because they were petrified. And, and we discover that nature's Lord spoke to the wind and the waves and they ceased. The God who had created the wind and the waves and established them and their laws spoke to them and proved exactly what David says in this song, that God sits enthroned over the waters, over the flood. But then finally, the creator surrendered. See, all his life, Jesus had commanded the elements, but in the end, he surrendered to them. He surrendered to the greatest enemy, the Bible tells us, the last enemy, the final result of entropy in your short life. Jesus surrendered himself to a natural death. Oh, it was humiliating. It was politically charged. It was a moral scandal. It was sociologically unjust, but it was very physical. Jesus surrendered himself to biological death. And he did it for you. He was dying the death, the spiritual death that you and I deserve. And he moves us to awe, but to affection for his great sacrifice. So we learn that the God who spoke in the thunder has also spoken to us in Jesus, who we call the living word, the voice of the Lord speaking to you in the natural disasters, speaking to you in your life-threatening illness. 
and the conditions that cause you to have to medicate yourself. Jesus, the voice of the Lord, speaking peace and the promise of resurrection and full physical restoration to you. Spurgeon said when talking about this psalm, when the Lord sends the word, it breaks hearts stouter than the cedars. Mother Nature has earned your awe, but she will never gain your trust. So let Jesus, the God of creation, break your proud spirit to trust God above the storm, to trust a God who created it and still loves you. Believing and singing along with David that although nature's chaos threatens within you and threatens without you, God is greater than the chaos. God is above the chaos. Nature may reign over you for a little while, for this life, but God reigns over nature. Never forget that. As we explore the wonders of science and use technology to the fullest, and even as we see uh, the weakening and aging and end of this physical life for now, remember that God reigns over the chaos. So give him his due. Worship him and let him help you. Let him help you. He can sustain you through the storms because he's with you in the storms. He, the disciples learned that that day and they remembered it later when they wrote the New Testament He's with you in the storms. He proved it. So that eventually your prayers, because this is why we're doing the Psalms, because our lives are devoid of the ancient art of meditation as it teaches us how to live a life of prayer. And as you learn how to pray through, through the natural disasters that we see all around us, our prayers begin to declare, along with David, a mighty God. You see an earthquake, you feel an earthquake, you see a storm, a mighty God, our prayers begin to declare. In your cancer, in your heart disease, your prayers begin to sing along with David, a mighty God in your miscarriages. And as you struggle with depression or anxiety, your prayers begin to echo the song, Almighty God. And in your loss and in your grief, as we lose from the chaos within and without, our prayers begin to say, a compassionate God. And as we pray through our sin and the guilt that we drag along because of our sin and the shame of our sin, we begin to pray a forgiving God. Let's pray right now. And as I pray, I am gonna invite you to stand with me. I'm gonna do this a little differently today. If you're new, don't freak out. I won't do this all the time. Stand with me. You're gonna have to stand when you sing anyway, so stand right now as JT comes up. We're gonna to pray together. And as I pray, 
if you are a person of faith and if you believe that the God above the storm has the power to guard you through the storm, has the love to protect you no matter what this life does to you, if you believe that, then I want you to repeat these words with me, a mighty God. Say it together, a mighty God. If you don't believe that, we respect you and love you. You don't have to say it. But if you believe that, repeat with me again, a mighty God, our Father, in the name of our Savior Jesus, who rebuked the waves and still submitted to physical death, we declare because of your great love for us that he showed, a mighty God, Father, in our disease, in our sickness, in, in our chemical uh, in the chemical imbalances that oppress our minds and our bodies, we declare to you a mighty God. Father, as we see the destruction in this planet, as we see people lose their lives because of famine, because of earthquakes, because of flooding, as we see people lose all the possessions that they have because they cannot control nature, we declare to you a mighty God. Father, as our bodies as our bodies rage against us, even as our desires rage against what we know is good and right, we declare a mighty God. And we also say that you are compassionate, that you are forgiving, and in the storms you will not leave us alone. And all God's children said together, amen.